Hello and welcome to another episode of Healing Through Pain, a podcast dedicated to the mission of walking people towards healing and health. In each new episode, we will discuss how to show up well for the responsibilities and opportunities that life sends our way. Here is your host, Stephanie West, a licensed practicing counselor in the state of Michigan, a teacher, and a professor who lives her life at the intersection of mental health and education. Thanks so much for following along. Hello friends, today we're going to start at least a two-part series, probably more of a three-part series on what is trauma, but specifically related to the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. We call it the ACEs, and it comes from research done in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And I want to just lay the context for where we've kind of came upon this understanding of what happens in early childhood. So we had two physicians who were running an obesity clinic, and it was what's really neat about it is their sample size was absolutely ginormous. So we're talking about data from about 17,000 patients. And what was happening in this particular clinic was these doctors decided to help morbidly obese patients undergo radical weight loss, but not through medical methods. Instead, they were going through rapid weight loss through food and dietary intervention. And so these men put together kind of an, a program where systematically everything was removed from the diet except for the bare essentials. And so it was 100% fasting until the body would start to break down certain necessary components and then they would add just the bare components back in. And over the course of, you know, a calendar year, someone could lose exponential amount of weight because you lose weight through a calorie deficit and when you're not consuming calories, you can lose a host of weight. Now, that is not tacit endorsement of radical methods. That's just where this particular study was focused in the 80s and 90s. And some of the stories were just staggering. So there was this woman, and we'll just call her Pamela. So Pamela was around 432 pounds, I believe is the metric that is officially given for the starting point of her story. So she goes to this clinic, and they remove all food, and and they start to focus only on hydration. And then as her body starts to break down, they supplement it with just protein, or they will supplement it with specific vitamins and minerals. So as the body shows a deficit of something that's vital. They supplement only that resource. And over the course of a calendar year, she loses the broadside of about 300 pounds. And they are elated with this success. She's in the 130s at that point in time. And she is just kind of the uh, quintessential success story for this particular program. Now, it would have to be showing high marks of success if you have 17,000 people entrusting these doctors with this journey over the span of time that they're running this particular clinic. But what happens, interestingly, is she starts to suddenly put weight on, but she puts it on at such an aggressive amount that it basically defies basic physiology. So over the course of a couple months, she puts on like 60 pounds in 60 days or something, and the doctors are just flabbergasted. They don't understand how she could just defy kind of basic math and put on copious amounts of weight. And Pamela's saying to them, nothing's really changed, except I wonder if I might be sleep eating because I'll wake up in the morning and there'll be empty cartons and containers everywhere, but I'm not actively eating during the day. I'm I'm following kind of our agreed upon protocols and diet. I don't understand what's going on. And instead of just kind of dismissing it, oh, well, she's, she's a failure or she's intentionally sabotaging herself, they finally started to ask questions. And, and this is a 
pivotal question. They started to ask, why was she obese in the first place? And so they dug into her history, and Pamela had a sex abuse history that was happening very early on in her developmental years, so in her, her younger childhood days. And what precipitated the weight gain after she successfully lost 300 pounds was there was a male coworker, and it might have actually been like a client, who made a pass at her, and she said, no, thank you, I'm not interested. And the person kept making physical advances towards her. And at a subconscious level, what once protected her, which was being physically unattractive at 430 pounds from her point of view, what was once an asset to her is no longer there. And so she started to not at a conscious level, but at a subconscious level, re-equip herself with protection and started putting weight on at just staggering, staggering rates. And when they started to ask this question of why do people find weight to be a solution, they dove into understanding what we now know to be the adverse childhood experience or the ACEs study. So over the course of 17,000 patients and 17,000 stories, they start to figure out that there are common triggers and common themes that led to people having inappropriate relationships with food and inappropriate relationships with weight. And over the next two segments here, I'm going to invite you into understanding what those particular ACEs are. Now, the thing is, this is kind of the trauma information we had back in the 1990s. And so we could expand this list out and we could talk about many more pieces of potential trauma that happen in a child's story, but these 10 are a basic launching point. And the first five are the ones I'm going to cover today. The first five focus on verbal abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse that happens to someone in their physical body, in their person. And then on Wednesday's episode, the next five are going to be talking more about relational and environmental things that happen. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you what does the actual verbiage of the study say? And then for some of these, I'm going to add in a few kind of peripheral thoughts or or give some more context that might be helpful. But I can assure you that when I go through these types of questionnaires with clients, so many things come together in their story when they start to understand that our bodies and our brains and our habits and our behaviors literally wire us for protection. We don't necessarily do it at a conscious level. We are engaging in knee-jerk reactions to help protect ourselves. And hopefully as I go through this, this can give you some more context. So number one on the ACEs study says, did parents put you down, insult you, humiliate you, or did they act in a way where physical violence was worried about? Now, I said that the brain and the body will wire for whatever the perceived threat is. And I'm going to use that word again and again, the perceived threat, because it doesn't mean that a threat was actually there. It just means the child registered it as a threat. And so one of the anecdotes I use with my clients is I say, okay, let's say you come in to see me and and you've come in for five sessions and we go through the same routine. So you walk in my door, I greet you warmly, you come and sit down. Session two, you walk in my door, I greet you warmly and you sit down. And we do that for five sessions. But on the sixth session, something's going on in my day where I'm feeling a little frustrated. So you walk in my door and instead of greeting you warmly and you sitting down, I instead decide to sucker punch you. Now here's the thing. Five of our interactions have been warm and pleasant and lovely. But on the sixth one, I've now decided to inflict some sort of damage. Your body is going to respond on the seventh time you walk into my door. Now, hopefully you come back, right? Because yeah, Steph just had a bad day. It's not a big deal. But the seventh time you walk in, you're going to flinch. You're going to be primed. You're going to be aware that there's a threat. The eighth time you come in, the ninth time you come in. And maybe over time, your body will calm down because you and I have this great rapport. And over time, I feel I present as trustworthy again. But let's say on the 15th time you walk in again and I sucker punch you. When the body is given inconsistent 
data, it will still wire for the perceived threat. And so we have to understand that the body and the mind will wire according to the environment that we're in. And the bummer is that what's so complex for kids, and we'll talk more about development going forward, but what's so complex for kids is there's nowhere for them to go abstractly and to think, oh, well, mom's just having a bad day or dad just overreacted. Instead, they're thinking something happened where I was unprepared or I caused an issue and now my body is being assaulted because of it. And so they will change their behaviors. They will wire themselves for protection. And if there's no one to walk them through that it was just mom or dad having a bad day, they start to pull on faulty cognitive distortions or they start to pull on faulty schemas or they start to pull on adaptive behaviors that make sense to them. It doesn't have to make sense to we, the adults, but it makes sense to them because there's a perceived threat. Now, the second ACE is did adults in the household physically abuse you and did they leave marks? Again, the body will wire to accommodate abuse. The mind will wire to accommodate abuse. And so if that's going on, you're physiologically going to be primed for that type of threat in your environment. So when you go off into your adult life and someone's not assaulting you, that actually feels like the mismatch because as a child, you anticipated threat because as a child, there was threat. And this is one of the things that I get so frustrated about when someone walks into an abusive relationship and people are questioning, why do they stay? Well, they stay because at some point in their life, abuse was normalized and they don't know the difference. They don't understand that that's not love. They understand from faulty upbringing that that could be what love looks like. And so we have to understand from a trauma perspective that what we do makes sense based on the context in which we were raised. The third one that shows up on the ACEs study is did an adult or person of five years older than you touch, fondle, or sexualize you and or was there intercourse? And here's one of the things that we have to be aware of. In the letter of the law, in the legal sense, we're talking about five years or older is an issue. So if there's a six-year-old and a 12-year-old, that enters into some legal issues. If there's a six-year-old and an 11-year-old, that's been normalized as potentially not predatory behavior. But run through it with me cognitively here. When we have like a four-year-old sister and an eight-year-old brother, how is that not something that we address as an absolute egregious act and, and we, we do, and in the, in the counseling context, we do, but we can dismiss it as in kind of culturally as normal child's play or normal curiosity. But there was a power imbalance there and someone was sexualized and someone's perception of sexual propriety has now been forever skewed unless someone comes along and teaches them about it differently. And so when things get normalized at a tragically young age, there's going to be consequences going forward and there's going to be healing that has to happen. The next piece, numbers four and five, are talking about physical neglect, emotional neglect, or psychological neglect. So the first three focus on abuse. The second two are going to focus on neglect. Number four is such a sticking point as I walk through teenagers and young adults and their stories, and as I walk with many women through transitions. Number four says, did you often feel that no one in your family thought of you as important or special, or the family didn't look out for each other or feel close to each other? It doesn't say, is this fact? It said, did you feel that way? It's the perception perception that no one cared or the perception that you were unimportant or the perception that someone didn't look out for you. And I will have parents go toe to toe with their child and challenge them. So I'm thinking of a case just, um, it was probably about two years back now where I had a 17 year old sitting in my office and we invited mom in and the 17 year old said, mom, you don't even know who I am. You don't know my likes. You don't know my dislikes. You could care less. You are indifferent about me. And mom said, I don't know what you're talking about. I take you on vacation. I provide your 
food. I take you to sports practice. And mom listed off all the kind of perfunctory details that happen in their day. And the daughter said, mom, that doesn't matter to me because you don't know who I am. You don't know my likes. You don't know my dislikes. You don't invite yourself into my life. I'm invited into your life. I can come alongside of you with things that are important to you, but you don't take time to get to know me. And this is tragic. It is such a misstep when parents are being told, mom and dad, this is painful to me. I feel unseen. And and parents are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I meet all of your needs. Okay. But the very thing they're trying to communicate reinforces that you're just not willing to see them and hear them and understand them. Now, one of the things that's not mentioned under this one that I think really should be is when we are in a context where there are siblings that are very adversarial. So if one sibling is kind of left unchecked and they kind of rule the atmosphere of the house, it can be so painful to those who are younger than them because often there's a hierarchy of victimization going on. And this is one of the pieces of the ACEs study that I think there's maybe a gap here that we would have to understand. When parents are maybe forceful with oldest child and then oldest child uses that type of power structure on his younger siblings or on her younger siblings, that can be an incredibly abusive environment. But again, one that we don't talk about because we just say, well, siblings will be siblings, kids fight, whatever it is. But it's usually a trauma reenactment that's being perpetrated kid after kid because there's such a pervasive feeling of powerlessness. Now, the fifth one says, were there times where you didn't have enough to eat, where you had to wear dirty clothes, where no one protected you, were the parents neglectful or engaged in substance use? So this one, again, it's too big of a a net to cast. If any of those pieces apply to you, there's potentially some traumatic implications or some trauma responses showing up in your world. So if your physiological needs aren't being met, like you don't have enough food or you were going to school with dirty clothes and maybe there was peer repercussions from that, those are going to be things that potentially leave damage. The second part of that says no one was there to protect you, which actually goes back to number four and says, did you grow up in a place where people looked out for themselves and didn't look out for each other? And that is such a difficult space to be in when you are kind of at the mercy of the system and you're six or seven or eight or nine years old and you don't have a way to cope with it. You're going to assume that you're the problem. You're going to try to people please or perhaps you shut down or perhaps you act out on younger people because it's a power imbalance yet again showing up there, a trauma reenactment. Perhaps you self-soothe through any type of addiction. Perhaps you develop a personality disorder. That's what's happening in the lives of our six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds when they don't know how to deal with the world around them. They choose maladaptive ways because they can't say to family, hey, I feel like I'm being scapegoated or hey, I feel emotionally neglected or hey, I feel like nobody cares. They can't communicate that. And so instead, they choose a course of action that makes sense in their tiny brains and their underdeveloped brains. They make themselves the problem and often they make themselves the solution by choosing faulty mechanisms and faulty coping strategies. Now, there's two more I want to mention here before I wrap up today. Two more that can be so, so damaging. When kids are asked to keep family secrets, we are inviting them into fractured lives. When we say to them, go to school and act this way, but at home we act this way, or go out with your friends, but you're not allowed to talk about these things. When we ask them to prioritize secrecy, that is a real big issue, and that's going to be something that convolutes what they understand to be true about relationships going forward. And the second one, kids who are denied the right to privacy, that is a real issue. And when we talk about people getting intruded upon, a lot of kids who get intruded upon going forward, even in their formative years, in their adolescence, in their young adulthood, often it is coming out of the context of they did not have the right to privacy, which means they did not have the right to set boundaries. They did not have the right to say no thank you. And those are categorically going to be people who get exploited. And so as we talk about this and as we kind of flesh out the discussion, 
it's not just about these 10 aces. What it is about how the body and the mind and the brain and the behaviors will wire to protect us. And so when we talk about the community ones on Wednesday, I want you to think through, might some of these things have happened in my life? I can look at my ACE score and I can feel relief because I understand some of my story better. I also feel a lot of grief because my story is riddled with a lot of these issues. I also feel profound sadness that I have coping strategies that I brought in to survive a context that was difficult. And we're also going to talk in a later episode about what does it look like to disrupt trauma and to disrupt these types of responses. Because if no one is there to walk us through it, we will come up with faulty ways of navigating the world around us. And it's not going to be based in fact, it's going to be based in our perception of what's happening. And so as we come back on Wednesday, and I do hope you choose to come back, we are going to talk about what are some of the community things, what are some of the environmental things that might happen. If this is helpful at all, please choose to share it. From my point of view, when we talk about mental health distress, understanding this particular study and understanding what our brains and what our bodies and our behaviors do to adapt to our environment, it is paramount, not for giving us an excuse for what we do, but for providing an explanation of why we do what we do. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. Please share this content with friends and family. Feel free to connect with Stephanie at healingthroughpain21 at gmail.com. Until next time, be well.